Gresham College presents Nice Work If You Can Get It, Life as a Children's Heart Surgeon by Professor Martin Elliott. So when I was appointed as Gresham Professor of Physics, I accepted a sentence of three years hard labour. And uh, those three years are up now. And this lecture was to have been my swan song. Um, reflecting about half a century of being a doctor and almost 30 years, in fact, more than 30 years as a cardiac surgeon. And I thought you'd ask you for a bit of indulgence so I could uh, wax lyrical a bit. But sadly for you, it's not my swan song. I've agreed to serve another year of my sentence. Um, and so I'm back in the autumn uh, for some more serious <laughs> Uh, for me, being um, a children's heart surgeon has been the very definition of nice work. It's been exciting, immersive, challenging, fun, and above all, a chance always to work with young people. Um, my job is to repair congenital heart defects, those that are present at birth and not necessarily hereditary. It's essentially a plumber who repairs biological pumps. But a plumber with a large repertoire, the heart is a complex uh, structure with a number of congenital anomalies which can exist is large. There are over 3,500 individual anomalies and 2,500 things that we can do, little ones that we can fix. It becomes a really interesting job when you add all of those together. And it's a job you can't do on your own. You're just a cog in a large and highly integrated machine devoted to improving the lives of children. It's the epitome of teamwork. And of course, surgeons like to, they think they like to think they're at the centre of everything, but it's not the surgeon, it's the child. Everything revolves around them. Now, actually, the surgeon um, only meets the child and family infrequently in the course of care. The first time you might meet them is during pregnancy when someone, um, a sonographer or a fetal cardiologist, will make a diagnosis that needs a little more additional uh, input from a surgeon to discuss what to do. The second time is after the baby's born when a paediatric cardiologist will see the child and if it's an emergency, call in the surgeon to undertake some treatment. Intensive care is usually needed and so the uh, intensive team, care team become involved as well. And then at the core of all the activity of most cardiac units is a multidisciplinary team meeting. It's the heart of it. It's, again, the very epitome of the teamwork that we have. The cardiologist and the surgeon meet with everybody else in the team to discuss what's best for the child. A few um, years ago, the BBC did a documentary at Great Ormond Street, and it was clear from the feedback we got that many of the people who were watching it had absolutely no idea how much time, as a team, we devoted to making decisions about the care of a child. It's not just a cardiologist and a surgeon, it's an entire team. In fact, each child's discussed a couple of times uh, before surgery, once by the whole team and a second time by that team again, immediately before the operation so we don't screw up. Peer review and quality assurance. We do the operation, of course, but afterwards the follow-up is by cardiology close to home. And we might meet again if the cardiologist changes the treatment and feel that we need to have some sort of multidisciplinary team meeting to change the plan. So an intermittent but wonderful access throughout our care. Now, it, it's nice work for sure, but it's not just nice work because I'm working with great people in one building. It's because I work in the NHS. 
I've worked all my life in the much bigger team of the NHS, and in my view, it remains one of society's greatest developments. Children have no control over their health, especially uh, those things they're born with. And young families are often at a stage in their life when resources are stretched or limited. I'm, I'm really proud to have worked in a system um, where the um, care has been delivered free at the point of delivery. It's been a wonderful thing. I've been surrounded by dedicated people um, giving up their lives for the NHS and for all of these children. And they're doing it for the love of those children and not for money. So let me tell you a little bit of how I got there. Um, after I did my A-levels at grammar school in Sheffield, I went to um, medical school in Newcastle. I was just 17, having missed out a year at school. I was too young to drink in a pub. Uh, except I soon had to break the law because rather naively I bought every book on the reading list and had nothing left. And so I had to go and play darts in the Leeser's Tavern for money at lunchtimes uh, to survive the first term. Um, I did survive the first term and I did make enough money to do that, but I still can't subtract from 501. Um, I was too young to go in a pub, but I wasn't too young to dissect human cadavers, which I found myself doing within two weeks of starting university at 17. It was terrifying and shocking and simultaneously exhilarating. A, a bond formed between my fellow students around that table uh, and with the generous person who donated their body. I, I loved the practicality of dissection and its, its precision and still think it's a fantastic way to teach anatomy. Most students in medical school these days learn from MRI or 3D printing, um, and they don't get that haptic feedback, that touch feedback, from which surgeons remember most things, and I think they're missing something. I was really lucky to go to Newcastle when I did. The teaching was outstanding. It, it was, of course, an accident that I was there at the time. And they engaged us with patients from day one, um, linking basic science to people. When I was doing that dissection, we were firstly cutting up somewhere called the posterior triangle of neck, which is on, on the back of your um, shoulder, and not much happens there. And we couldn't really understand why we were learning it. Until we were taken across the road to the casualty department where someone had a knife sticking out of that part of their anatomy. And suddenly, you realise why you're doing it. I think I could still dissect that area, and I can certainly still see the face of the man whose neck it was. We were linking together a person with the science, personalising the care and humanising the science, and what better way to learn your subject. But my love affair with surgery didn't start in Newcastle. In the summer of my third year, in 1971, um, I went to America and got my BTA, my Been to America, um, and I went to Chattanooga in Tennessee as something called an extern, which is like a, a, a foreign intern. Um, and a good friend had been there previously and said he'd had a good time, so why not? And I went to do obstetrics and gynaecology. Very rapidly, it was made clear to me that that wasn't my natural subject um, and I shouldn't be doing it. Uh, instead, I went to watch the activities of an American emergency room and to spend a little time in the children's hospital um, and also at weekends to go up to this wonderful river where um, a, a movie that I'll show you in a minute was filmed. 
this um, experience of being in an emergency room and in America simultaneously was quite extraordinary. It wasn't as full on as ER in Cook County in Chicago, but I saw things I'd, I really hadn't witnessed in England. I'd seen poverty in Newcastle, but not extreme poverty. I hadn't seen terrible diet with starvation, and I hadn't seen racism. So, and as well as that, I was exposed to in, in fantastic music, both gospel and country, as you can see from this film of, oh, which with the music has gone off, I'm afraid. There it's come back. Which was from a film called Deliverance, which was filmed on that river and released just after I got back to England. Come it was on, great to in. watch all this stuff. The emergency room was staffed by people from all over the world, but it was overseen by medics, most of whom had spent their formative years in MASH units in Vietnam. A little local trauma in Chattanooga was nothing to them. They were confident, able, and incredibly willing to teach. Most importantly, they engaged we externs in the work of the department and taught us <coughs> excuse me, core basic skills of the battlefield, stopping bleeding, maintaining airways, and putting out drips. And they taught me to tie knots. They put Vaseline on my hands, then a pair of gloves that were too tight, more Vaseline and a pair of gloves that were too loose. Then they put a blindfold around my face and made me tie knots, right-handed, left-handed, and two-handed, in a bucket of warm water behind my back. And until I could do that, they wouldn't let me do anything. Shortly afterwards, rioting broke out in the streets, and suddenly I was needed. Uh, and they asked me to tie off an artery bleeding deep in someone's pelvis. Suddenly I could do it. I had the skills that you needed to tie off a bleeding artery. It was terrifying and satisfying simultaneously. And it made me realise that I wanted to be a surgeon. It was formative, really. I wanted to be able to make a difference, and immediately, and with my own hands. Um, I came back to Newcastle, qualified somehow, and then um, got a job in uh, the main teaching hospital in Newcastle, which was called the Royal Victoria Infirmary. Here it is. In those days, when you were a houseman, you lived in. Uh, the wards were nightingale wards, those long wards with beds down the side, and you were resident uh, pretty well all the time. In fact, for my first six months, I was on call all the time. Uh, you knew and were expected to know everything about all of your patients all of the time. There was genuine continuity of care, hardly any handovers, and it was all kept simple. It was also a family. Because we lived in, we were fed and watered, um, and there was a bar where we all met in the evening uh, to discuss our work of the day and with the patients and with their families. We learnt not just about medicine, but about society and the pressures on people in a way that I think is much harder these days. Um, but it was stupidly hard work. You never got home. We were all a bit wild. There were great parties, and we did a bunch of japes that would almost certainly get us sacked these days. Um, but we worked hard and played hard, and those people in that year have done quite well long-term. The year flew by in a haze, and we soon found ourselves fully registered doctors, let loose on an unsuspecting world. In fact, of course, it was just a license to do more exams and to work even harder. 
And um, the first part of the exams you need as a surgeon is to get your first part fellowship. And the easiest way to do that in those days was to teach anatomy for a year, which I did with great pleasure and uh, snuck through the fellowship at the end of that time. Now, by now, I'd been in Newcastle for seven years. So I applied for a job in the South and um, ended up uh, getting a senior house officer job uh, after more competition in the New Forest, uh, working between Southampton and Lymington. Lymington's a lovely place. Um, and the, I thought it was great. The weather was warm. The people were more friendly than I was expecting since they came from the south. And uh, the sea was close by, what was, what was not to like. But actually, the population of the New Forest doubles in the summer. So you suddenly are a big city, um, worked from a cottage hospital, essentially, in Lymington. It was scary, and it was my first real exposure to proper surgery. Just before my first weekend on call, I asked my boss, who was a very elegant ex-naval officer, um, he came to me and said, would I, would I like to go sailing with him at the weekend? And I said, well, sir, I'd, I'd love to go sailing with you, but I'm on call. Such a shame. <laughs> Another time, perhaps. I said, what, what do I do if there's a problem, because I haven't done much operating on my own, um, what do I do if I need to call anybody? He said, oh, that's no problem at all. I'm on call, and if you need me, I'll be in Cherbourg. <laughs> <coughs> and he was sailing there, and there were no mobile phones. This is my first weekend on call, and I did have to operate. And I operated with a, a brilliant theatre nurse and a book propped up on a music stand. I was glad I'd learnt anatomy. And it's terrible that that happened. I can't think that that kind of training would be acceptable anymore. But it's, it also gives you a curious confidence. And when I eventually moved to Southampton, I've, my training progressed rapidly. Um, but at the end of that time, you have to compete again to get another job. This time, a rotation job in general surgery and other specialties before you can start to move into something you really like to do. It was a kind of taster uh, called a rotation where you could do lots of specialties. And I did general surgery, A&E, cardiothoracics, plastics. And it, uh, the job that came up first was in Newcastle. Uh, they advertised first because it's very cold up there. And I found myself back in the northeast. I loved the tasters, actually. You get a really good feeling for what excites you. And I thought I'd end up doing plastics. I did almost end up doing plastics, but just... After I got my fellowship and before um, really making my final career decision, I was phoned up by the cardiac surgeons who I job I'd just finished. And they said, um, well, would you like to go to San Francisco for a year? Which seemed like a cool idea. Um, to work with a chap called Gabodi, who was very famous at the time. And, um, but you'll have to come back and work with us so that when you go to the States, you don't let the side down. I went back uh, to work with them and never left. Um, in those days, cardiac surgery was very different. Uh, 25 years old only, the specialty. Um, it remained incredibly hard work. Operations were long. Bleeding was common. Intensive care was difficult. Doctors like me managed the patients post-operatively as well as during the day, supported by anaesthetists. And you would do that day after day. But it was a wonderful mix of practical skills and intensive care that we had to learn as we went along. Mostly it worked, 
Sometimes it didn't. And it was, a, it was a tragedy to deal with those situations. But the work was full on, um, physically and emotionally draining, uh, and, and absolutely fascinating. At about that time, I met this man, George Alberti, who became Sir George Alberti and ultimately president of the Royal College of Physicians. George was a, a professor of clinical biochemistry and also an expert in diabetes. He was not impressed by surgeons. He thought they were, um, didn't have a brain in their head, that we had hairy knuckles which dragged on the floor, and that any kind of intelligent comment was purely random. And uh, one evening he approached me and um, said, why don't you do something useful instead of that stupid cardiac surgery? Uh, why don't you do diabetes? And, and actually what he was getting at was that a lot of diabetic patients were dying in relation to open heart surgery for reasons which then weren't clear. And on the back of an envelope, we scribbled out the outline of a grant application. And with um, Mike Holden, who was my mentor, surgical mentor in Newcastle, we tidied this up and wrote a grant application to the British Heart Foundation and, much to everybody's surprise, got, got the grant. Um, this left them with a bit of dilemma because I didn't have a job. My short-term job as a registrar was coming to an end. And so they very kindly made an academic senior registrar post for me called a first assistant, um, which was really nice. It shortcutted the way to getting a doctorate. And it allowed me to do my clinical work and research work simultaneously. That's as mad an idea as it is exciting. The workload was ridiculous. So I was operating work all day, looking after patients clinically one night, and then operating the next day, and then doing my research the next night in the hospital using this uh, device, which was an artificial pancreas of the era, which was a pig of a machine that required terrible calibration, blood, blood samples every few hours, and each one of those needed careful handling. In those days, um, you couldn't draw graphs on a computer. We had to use Letraset. Um, you had to use a calculator to add things up. And to make slides, you had to photograph pieces of paper and then colour them with ink. It's not that long ago. It's really hard to imagine how manual this all was. Um, somehow, um, we did get the doctorate, and it worked. We did find ways of improving the metabolic response to surgery, and we did find ways of controlling diabetes during surgery, which is still in use. And I was doing adult cardiac surgery mainly then. And the most common operation being done in adult cardiac surgery was coronary artery bypass grafting. Here, stitching a vein, um, a vein onto a coronary artery. And I was busy doing this operation sometime and uh, found myself looking at the clock. Because the currency between surgeons at the time was how long does it take him or her to do a distal end, the far end of this graph? That's how we measured our status between ourselves. And suddenly I thought, this is not for me. There's something really wrong here. I had no idea who I was operating on. I'd, I'd forgotten the patient. I was only interested in the time it was taking. And it was a very, very important moment. That wasn't why I joined medicine. I wanted to do something where I could care. I was lucky again to be working with Mike, who had a mixed adult and paediatric practice, and he introduced me to the weird intricacies of congenital heart disease, where you have to mix form and abnormal form and function and abnormal function and try and put them together 
in three dimensions and with long-term physiology. Intellectually and physically, the most wonderful thing. But you had to relearn everything about the heart. Um, at the end of that time, it also became clear that whilst I was happy doing congenital heart disease, I wasn't seeing enough in Newcastle. It was a small centre, and to, to see all these rare things, you needed to be in a bigger place. And they helped me apply for a post in Great Ormond Street, where I went when I was now 33, in 1984. And um, it was an interesting experience. Most important part of it was having to be humble. Great Ormond Street had long been famous for a close working relationship between surgeons and cardiologists, and all the decisions were made in a multidisciplinary team meeting, which in GOS they call the JCC, or Joint Cardiac Conference. I really remember my first one. Cold January day. A room packed in a porter cabin where we used to have our offices. Um, and everybody in the room I knew from the medical literature or from the books they'd written. And the room was also full of international experts and visitors. And there was this air of confident expertise. And hardly anyone was English, least of all from the north. Uh, and I was terrified. And, and my feeling of insecurity wasn't really helped by the fact that I didn't understand anything about the first three patients that they presented. And everybody else seemed to be absolutely fine with it. The two other fellows who were there with me at the time, one was from America and one from Canada, uh, they both got it and understood everything was happening. And I was left this feeling that, please don't ask me a question. Whatever you do, don't ask me a question. I had to go back to being a student mentally from that moment onwards. Now, um, it was also a shock to realise that every nurse in the place and most of the patients and appeared to know more than I did. And there was happily little, if any, intellectual snobbishness. Um, David Wensley and Tom Carl, who were the two people with me at the time, taught ourselves uh, a huge amount, a lot of it, in these two institutions, which are uh, the pubs around Great Ormond Street, um, and suddenly realised that everybody struggles with congenital heart disease. It's really, really hard to learn, and everybody learns at a different speed. Everybody learns in a different way, and there's no such thing as a stupid question. Everybody I met in that place wanted to teach you more, and they continue to do that. You learn every day from someone, from everyone, and that's a real privilege. Now, at the end of my first year at Great Ormond Street, I um, failed to get the consultant job I thought I was going to get in Newcastle. It was advertised as an academic paediatric job, and it was... Uh, went to an adult cardiac transplant surgeon. That wasn't good. Suddenly, I had no future. There were no jobs coming up for 10 years, as far as you could see, in the whole country. And I was deeply upset, and there were indeed tears. Very depressed, I came back to London. And my two bosses, uh, Yarda Stark and Mark de Laval, um, extended my post. And within a few months, they um, had agreed to um, have another partner because their business was growing. And um, they advertised, and I thought, oh, light at the end of the tunnel, until I saw the list of international applicants and thought, oh, no, this is bad. Um, but fortunately, sneaked in, and I've been there since 1985. So by now, I was 12 years postgraduate 
um, before I got a consultant job. But I'd done masses of surgery, quite a lot of research, uh, and I'd worked in some, with some fantastic people. Um, but I, and I was still relatively young, so it was quite good. But it does give you that picture, gives you some idea of what a junior doctor is. We keep reading about junior doctors in the paper, but they are not junior. 12 years postgraduate. This is not a job if you don't like children. Um, and to be able to work with children is a great privilege, despite what actors say. Parents fight harder for their children than they do for themselves. They expect a lot more, and they expect more truth, in a way. And children themselves are, from a, a very, very young age, able to accept and interpret an enormous amount of information you give them if you give them time. If you can prepare and present something to a child that they can understand, you can certainly get another surgeon to understand it, unless they're one of George's surgeons, um, and a finance director or an ethical committee. But these days, um, children will often have watched the operation that you're going to do before you even see them. They'll have watched it on YouTube. I downloaded this from YouTube last night. It's a VSD closure. You can just do it yourself and watch it and download it. Kids do this in the clinic in front of you while you're talking to the parents. We film a lot of the operations we do, record those as video files, and the... Um, we were worried when parents asked us for these videos whether, how they would use them, whether it was a good idea or not. It turned out that children actually quite like them. They show them to their friends to explain what's happened. They use them in show-and-tell sessions at school. Um, as one of them put it, you move from being the school cripple to the school hero quite quickly. And sometimes with our help, we go and join them and talk to them about their operation. The parents, though, it's different. When they put their child into the operating room, the anaesthetic room, they actually don't know whether their child's coming back out the other end. And by giving them a video recording of the operation, it turned out from the psychologists who were working with us that we were actually replacing lost time. They may never watch the video, but that little file is lost time that would otherwise be lost. Medical staff find it very difficult to explain risk, and families often struggle what it means. If you uh, imagine that a risk of an operation is 5%, 5% chance of dying, it's quite, everybody has a different perception of what that means. Let me try one way here. It's 20 dots, 20 children about to cross a road. Uh, a 5% chance means one of them is not going to get to the other side. But we don't know which one. The one gets squashed in the middle of the road and doesn't survive. It, you don't know what it means. It's even more marked if you're part of a cohort of people following on behind that, because what they see is not the 19 survivors, but they, the one who died. The risk becomes much more evident if you know more about it, but you still don't know which child it is. And if it's a 20% risk or a 25% risk, it becomes much more graphic in your mind when you have to explain these things. Of course, stressful though it is to try and talk those things through, there is nothing as rewarding as giving good news to a family after an operation's gone well. The relief on the faces when you tell them it's gone well is great. It's impossible to underestimate the positive effect on a surgeon of hugs and kisses and a handshake. 
It's wonderful. Highly motivating and necessary to balance the bad times. But for these people, dealing with that risk, that risk feels like 50-50. Because they don't know for their individual child whether they're going to get to the other side of the road, no matter how positive and confident you are. So that's why that good news coming at the end can seem a disproportionate relief. Um, now, the other thing that happens in a place like GOS is that you frequently find yourself fighting for individual patients. There are times when, for some reason, you feel that the fate of that child really does rest in your hands. Times when you know that your commitment and energy will be required to motivate others when they're tired and beginning to flag. Times when ideas are short and solutions seem remote. Times when you feel you must attempt something that hasn't been done before, maybe unusual, untried or even heroic. I've done this several times in the course of my career, never on my own, of course. You're always doing it with others. But what makes it different in a place like GOS is that the whole place is devoted to the child. It's core to what you're doing. You're not trying to harm anybody. You're always trying to make it better. And uh, it's a difficult concept. Um, the situation that happens when it doesn't work out is very stressful. Very little can prepare you as a doctor for sharing bad news with people, whether it's been a death or a poor outcome. Each time is unique and uniquely stressful. And as the surgeon, the, the person holding the knife, you always feel accountable, even if the cause of the bad outcome is nothing to do with you. The job of informing the family often falls to the surgeon because of the relationship you built up. And you could, sometimes you don't need to say anything or saying something is superfluous because your body language gives it away. On other occasions, you get beaten, hit by a family who see you as a messenger. More often, we've got a little time to talk with people and prepare for these events. But sort of by the very nature of it, it's intensely emotional and it nearly always, for some reason, seems to take place at the end of a long day. It can be really hard to pick yourself up and behave normally when that's happened. Um, it's difficult to re-enter your own home after hours of emotionally draining trauma, difficult to climb back on the horse the next day and operate on those many people who still need their treatment. But you have to do it. Fortunately now, mortality is really low, as I've said to you before, 0.9% in Great Ormond Street last year. It's very rare to share fatal bad news. More common to have to talk about an outcome which isn't quite what you expect. Let's allow me to have a little drink. Um, when I went to Great Ormond Street, it was a place of a long tradition. J.M. Barry and the Peter Pan legacy, Charles Dickens. And I arrived there in January 1984, just after this man had abseiled down a wall. A huge amount has changed. New operations, new treatments... Technology has improved, post-operative care is radically different. Place is full of new buildings and now they're in colour. 
Um, and in those days, patients were taken from, from the operating room, not to a modern ICU that you might see from TV, but to a narrow three-bedded ward off a corridor in a 30, 1930s building. And the patients were on old-fashioned beds. The monitors were oscilloscopes, where there was no stored image, and pressures were measured as columns of fluid. It was extraordinarily difficult. Um, the, the fluids, we, the drugs we gave were on little roller pumps. You were not no syringe pumps. Now, the lady who ran this was called Adelaide Tunstall, is called Adelaide Tunstall. She was a woman of formidable intelligence, and she seemed to understand everything about congenital heart disease, made me feel completely inadequate. But she was extraordinarily modest, and she was firm, authoritative, clear, concise, and in the most effective way, didn't take any prisoners. We had to exceed her standards, which were based on the needs of the patient, of the child, a commitment to excellence, and a devotion to a wider team. It was the best lesson in leadership I've ever heard. Um, in those days, we did a lot of stuff at night. That's night. <laughs> and um, I didn't see much of it because I was inside. But uh, in, when children had an obstruction to the outflow of one or other side of the heart, um, they needed surgery immediately because the ductus arteriosus, which shunted blood between the two, closed shortly after birth. And we had no means of keeping it open. So you had to operate during the night quickly. And they were sick. And the whole team, the consultants, anesthetists, everybody came in and operated on these very, very sick, tiny babies. They came in to teach us and could give us confidence that we could manage these cases. It was very scary. But then something came along that totally changed us. And this was a drug called prostaglandin. Probably the thing which most has changed the surgeon's life over the last 50 years. This drug keeps the ductus, arterius, uh, ductus arterius op arteriosus open, the duct, I'll call it. It keeps the duct open so that it bypasses any obstruction on the way out of the heart. Um, you could infuse it into babies and they would get stabilised before you operated. And mortality and complications fell really quickly. And that, together with important advances in anaesthesia, in, in, in bypass and in surgery itself, allowed us to move towards repairing babies shortly after birth on bypass. And we surgeons got more sleep. Uh, the cardiologists and the intensivists had to get out of bed at night, and this seemed like a huge improvement. Um, we, the, the other side effect, though, was that the operations we did during the day were on smaller babies and became more complex. Everything has improved since from there to a modern ICU, and I wish I could tell you all about those improvements. Now, earlier, I mentioned that my time as an SR with, at GOS with David Wensley and Tom Carl, the two overseas fellows. Um, David was an intensivist, not a surgeon, the first time there'd been one. And this proved to be a blessing and a curse, because David um, didn't do any surgery, which meant that Tom and I could learn from our two senior people every day. The disadvantage is that it meant that we were resident, compulsorily resident, every other night and also on the third night at one in three to provide second on-call cover if we needed hands. Um, Mark and Yard also made it possible for me to carry on with my research from Newcastle and um, fitting this in was difficult. My family was still in Newcastle and the assumption was at that time I'd be going back there. Um, my trips home were short and infrequent and at best every third weekend. Um, my two-year-old son was convinced that I lived here. 
because that's where um, they used to drop me or see me when I came up to see them. And even when I, they eventually moved to London, I was only home two nights in seven. Times have changed. The working life of all cardiac surgeons, the whole team was different in those days. It was intense and a bit worth describing. Daily work became, began early. Remember, we were quite senior, 11 years postgraduate now, compulsorily resident, and three of the three of us, at least one of us, would have been up all night. The two consultants were both incredibly early birds and absolutely obsessional about their patients. One of them went swimming every morning at 5 o'clock um, in this pool. And, and then came to GOS afterwards to check on his patients. Uh, he knew all about his patients before we did. And he would then join us on a ward round at 7.30. The whole team would be in at 7.30 uh, to discuss the patients from the night before. Cardiologists, surgeons, everyone. We, as the senior registrars, were being tested on our knowledge of those patients. Everything had to be right. It was an enormous lesson in discipline. The people on the ward round were all world authorities as well, informed, intelligent, searching, and it was a hugely educational experience. These were people at the top of their game, and for a young guy exposed in this way, um, there was nowhere to hide. You had to learn quickly, even though you were uh, in deep exhaustion some days. And then we operated, all day and often in the evening. So this was a repeating cycle. Surgery wasn't so sophisticated, and we did work hard. However well you think you've been prepared for life as a consultant, there's one thing that still comes as a shock. And it was the same shock that greeted Harry Truman. The buck stops here. You suddenly realise that it really did, that you were there to solve problems that everybody else um, was struggling with. And you were conscious that at an MDT meeting, you were being watched to see how good your decisions were um, and how you stood up to the strain. I vividly remember not long after I was appointed, um, I'd just finished pontificating about my cunning plan for a patient uh, when I heard a strong New Zealand voice from the back of the room pipe up saying, oh, I've never heard such a lot of bloody rubbish in all my life. And that was this, this guy, Sir Brian Barrett-Boys, who was a doyen of cardiac surgery and actually written the book. It took me months to get my street cred back, as you can imagine. Uh, and again, teaches you uh, the right moment to say what you think, the right moment to be reticent and to be confident about what you need to know. Now, a few years ago, um, I gave a lecture called Learning the Violin in Public in, um, uh, in Basel. It was about how, as a surgeon, you're not just being expected to make decisions, but you're expected to operate, and you're expected to operate in public, in the operating room. You're watched by everyone with equal intensity. Every piece of fingering, every false note is seen and remembered. Now, I was working with really good surgeons, and as the new boy, I was very keen not to let the side down. The other thing, perhaps, um, those of you who don't know anything about cardiac surgery may not know, is that you're operating against a clock. You're operating against a time limit because you can't stop the heart forever and ever. You have to stop it for a period of time and fix it as fast as you can within an hour, hour and a quarter. So you not only need to be dexterous, but you also need to have good decision-making 
excellent communication with the team, and um, precise technical performance. Of course, sitting across behind the towel is the anaesthetist who's seen it all before and worked with the best. Uh, usually very people with great sense of cynicism. And you could tell how well you were doing by the air of confidence or otherwise that they exuded. Um, and the sudden presence of one of your seniors in that space uh, behind you would, would tell you that the anaesthetist had become a little worried about how you were getting on. Um, and I used to think that that might be, make me feel a bit paranoid, but actually I think it reflects a really, really good team that everybody is caring about that patient and they're bringing the right help at the right time to make sure the child does well. Now, the quietest time of a surgical consultant's life is immediately after appointment. You've got no personal caseload and you don't have a reputation. And this hiatus in my life allowed my um, seniors to send me off to America. And I went to Boston, Philadelphia, uh, Duke University... Birmingham, Alabama, and Loma Linda to learn some stuff, to work with the greats. And they treated me not as a student, but as an equal because I was now a consultant at Great Orbit Street. It was fantastic. I saw the same operations that we were doing done in several different ways and some new ones. I learned there are many ways to skin a cat. But it was another three months away from home. Um, no mobile phones, no Skype, no internet in those days, and my children were three and one. I had to deliver lectures in each place I went to. At horrible times in the morning, Americans work stupid hours. And I was subjected to terrible questioning on Saturday mornings at six, uh, uh, which were very stressful. I saw the good and the bad sides of American medicine. Again, the extraordinary poverty and the huge wealth and investment. The offices of some of the chairmen of these units were bigger than our entire department. Um, but what I learned there has stood me in good stead ever since. Coming back to Great Ormond Street, the workload increased rapidly, and uh, I was able to uh, operate um, every day pretty well, and I started to operate uh, abroad quite soon. And within two years, Mark de Laval um, decided that we should start doing heart transplants. This is a heart doing a transplant. And um, we trained together with Papworth in order to do that. Um, together we did transplants for 25 years after that, every other night. I'm going to talk about the medical aspects of transplantation in November. But um, everybody should experience the pleasure of being driven in a police car, blue lighting from Bloomsbury to Heathrow in the rush hour. I remember coming up Constitution Hill towards Marble Arch, expecting to do that, only to find that at very, very high speed, the policeman did that and went uh, <laughs> straight through um, uh, Wellington Arch. My stomach and my brain took the yellow route. <laughs> I also learned that in those days, following a Volvo in a police car was an irritating experience. It wasn't always good. I flew to uh, Londonderry, uh, up on the right-hand side, to go and collect a heart from Letterkenny, where the yellow star is across the Irish border. And we were picked up in Londonderry by a white transit van driven by a man with a strong Belfast accent. And we had to go down through Derry, and he got lost in the bog side. And nobody would show us in the right direction. We were shown round in circles. It took us ages and ages to get out. And by the time we did get out, intimidated and scared, we had to drive to the border where the police had been watching the film of us driving around the bog side and didn't think we were very wholesome and kept us there for ages at the border. 
to question us, and by the time we arrived in Letterkenny, the heart had deteriorated and couldn't be used. It was an endless series of disasters and excitement that uh, we will never forget. My first retrieval was of a child whose mother had put it into a baby walker like this on a flat roof, and it just walked over the end. Shortly afterwards, I went to a hospital where the child of the senior manager in the hospital had been buried alive in the sand on the beach, and he'd only found out by showing somebody else around the casualty department that this had happened. You never forget these stories. It serves to remind you that when you collect the heart of someone who's died, you're collecting something that is precious, belongs to someone, and you have to treat them, the heart, and the recipient with infinite respect. Now, um, I've sort of mentioned Encore quite a lot, but um, one of the fascinating things as I've grown older is I've realised how few people actually get what it means. Your neighbours and friends don't really understand. There's a sort of general perception that it's like a phone call or advice, but much more often when you're called, you actually have to get up, go in, and be there for days or, or, or a weekend without anybody knowing. And the phone goes... And all you ask is, what time is it? What time is it? What time is it? And anybody here who has ever been called at night, the first question is, what time is it? My son Toby once said, when he had an unpleasant but not serious illness, you have to be on a ventilator for Martin to think you're ill. And that still tears me apart inside. It is really important for anyone entering to this field to realise that your family are part of the work, however unwillingly. You will often be absent physically or mentally. Things are kinder now. Um, rotors are kinder. Junior doctors only work 48 hours when the slides I showed you earlier were 110 or 120 hour rotors. Um, prostagandin keeps us in bed. Shifts are different. There are intensivists and there weren't. Technology helps. Uh, not least because of the mobile phone means you can walk the dog. You couldn't do that in the old days. And data can be transferred through the cloud. The consultants still have to get out of bed, um, although less frequently. But when they do, they have to be obsessional and precise in action and communication. The operations are largely the same, but the results are so good now that for them it's a different kind of toughness. They have to perform from day one at very high level and some Surgeons struggle with this. It's a huge pressure. Um, I've been lucky enough to work in an institution which has a relentless pursuit of excellence and has always been open to ideas. It's joined at the hip um, to another academic institution, but the patients who come here um, often say the same thing. It was a relief finally to arrive in a place where people were uh, carrying out research and doing new things. The child first and always. We're joined at the hip with the Institute of Child Health at UCL, a living bond between research and clinical practice. Hospitals where research is routine are safer and more effective. People are gathering information and delivering improvements. It, it, it was... Um, uh, an interesting discovery to see that Great Ormond Street and the Institute competed internationally with hospitals like Boston Children's or Melbourne or Toronto. So you suddenly felt you were playing in a team in the, in the Champions League. And it, it, that internal competition 
that was very good for delivering uh, good outcomes. Research challenges conventional thinking. It improves record keeping and accrues evidence. Follow-up is more detailed and almost always the outcomes in that institution are more visible. Research should be done. The other thing um, which has been great is that it's an incredibly small discipline. Everyone in the business knows everyone else internationally. For years, I was the only English guy, English surgeon at Great Ormond Street. Our fellows came from everywhere around the world. And like my peers, I've operated on most continents, lectured all over the world, and feel privileged to have done so. It remains one of those specialties where you can still become a proper expert in a tiny part of it and be needed and help wherever you go. That's a huge privilege. You learn and you teach and you learn throughout your life. You never stop learning and you never stop teaching. Which brings in the question of how do you actually train nowadays to do this? It's an interesting problem because surgery remains a craft involving a significant amount of dexterity, haptic memory, and three-dimensional understanding. And traditional surgical training requires you to assist the teacher. Now, the teacher, the surgeon, is on the other side of the operating table, on the right here, and the assistant's on the left. But actually, they see something different. The surgeon sees the inside of the heart from um, quite easily. The assistant can't see what the hell's going on because there's tissue in the way and you're um, leaning over other people with lights on their heads. And the heart is deep in the chest. Reconstructing what's going on in your head is difficult and dangerous. Now, in music, here Alpha Brendel and, and Kit Armstrong, in the music, the pupil chooses the teacher that suits them. In surgery, this is rarely the case. It's usually uh, the teacher that chooses the pupil. And that can sometimes lead to difficult clashes in style. And in my experience, particularly, I had one brilliant young surgeon who came to train with us at Great Ormond Street who just didn't physically get on in the operating theatre with one of my colleagues. Nothing wrong with him intellectually. Um, but it was nearly a career-ending clash. And after a bit of toing and froing, that young surgeon ended up working with me. And uh, our, our surgical styles meshed perfectly without words. He ended up getting a consultant job at, at GOS before going back to the States to lead, a successfully, lead successfully a major unit. It's, the physical and personal operating styles are important and a key part of training and shouldn't be ignored. You, all training schemes need to be flexible. And I think there is something about at senior level in specialties that should allow you to select your teacher. Um, there's a harmony between the assistant and the surgeon when it goes well, which is lovely. But there's another one, another piece of harmony that is equally important, several pieces, actually. Um, the first of these is the relationship you develop with the person who's assisting you as a scrub nurse. His or her job is to hand you instruments in the correct way and to keep an organised and effective care of the instrument table. And when you're operating... You're focused down a little cone, you can't see very much, and you, you just want to think about that. So your instinct is to put your hand out and get an instrument put into your hand, which is the thing you need next. Now, a great scrub nurse, and I've, been, I've worked with some really amazing ones, is looking over your shoulders, seen enough of those operations, and knows what would help you. We'll have a selection of three or four things and choose the right one. 
Um, it's a, it, when it works, it's a silent and beautiful, exquisite ballet. Um, and there's an old ser- saying that says, don't give me what I ask for, give me what I need. The great scrub nurses and the great surgeons working with them never speak. They just know. And it's a hu- for, for any surgeons in the audience, I think they will recognise the huge pleasure of that moment. <coughs> the second person in cardiac surgery that you have a strong relationship with is the perfusionist, the man who, or woman who runs the heart-lung machine. These are vital, clever, and highly practical people. They're the best problem solvers. We used to joke that if you ever needed to escape from a German prisoner of war camp, they would be the ones to design the tunnel, they'd know how to hide the earth, and they'd get hold of a German uniform or a false passport very easily. They make the patient safe, and they have the leadership skills to dominate a room if they have to, which they do sometimes. The next flux of leadership and relationship is with the anaesthetist. Now, the anaesthetist doesn't just keep you asleep and take the pain away. The anaesthetist manipulates the physiology to get the best performance out of your heart and lungs and, indeed, your brain these days during an operation. They adjust everything that um, uh, they need to in, in this screen that you can see here, from drugs to ventilation and to monitoring equipment with an echocardiogram these days. A clear, decisive support from the anaesthetist who will boss you when they need to boss you makes your life much better. I want to finish um, by talking about management, which may come as a bit of a shock for those of you who thought you were going to have more blood. Um, Cardiac surgeons uh, acquire certain skills as they go through the work. Here they are. Communication, decision-making, situational awareness, and so on. These are characteristics which um, lend themselves to leadership. And often surgeons have type A personalities, so they think they want to be leaders as well. The only way to make change in a department or in a hospital is to get involved. You have to understand the system and use it. You can't get a new piece of kit. You can't get new staff. You can't change anything unless you've got a good evidence base and you can manage that process. Management is work, and the fighting for innovation is management. It's not avoidable. Now, those skills um, actually aren't anything to do with surgeons. They're what you need to fly a military aircraft. But they work just as well for surgeons, and uh, repeatedly they're the assessments that come up for successful leaders in surgery. There is a feeling abroad that the NHS is overmanaged and overscrutinized. This is the top half of the NHS since Lansley. It's almost incomprehensibly complex. Um, Byzantine, since the purchase of provider splits and the Lansley reforms of the first Cameron government. But actually, there aren't many managers in the health service, despite what the Daily Mail will tell you. Out of 1.3 million whole-time equivalents, it hasn't changed much, actually, since 2013. Only 3% are managers, and 9% of people are involved in local administration of a hospital. 10% doctors and nurses, 30% of the workforce. It's not a very big thing. If you're running a company, that's a quite a small proportion of the business being involved <laughs> in management. Um, many doctors are good at vision and quite good at strategy, but a lot of them are hopeless at how hospitals actually work, um, particularly about flow or process. 
The managers in hospitals are highly intelligent, utterly dedicated and grossly undervalued in my experience. They are usually desperate to improve the systems in which they work, but spend most of their time feeding the beast of that upper layer of the NHS with information in order to guarantee that budget flows. The IT that they've been given is not fit for purpose. And so they're left running around in circles dealing with problems uh, which are really quite difficult to resolve. Managing the cardiac unit, which I did for a long time, was one of the hardest jobs I ever did. Um, and uh, you don't get paid anymore for it. You had to really learn how to understand and work with all of these difficult problems. I'd love to talk to you about what I'd change in the health service, but there isn't time. Just one thing is that when you're managing a department like that, always hire someone better than yourself. That's the best thing to do. I became medical director at Great Ormond Street and uh, people said I'd crossed to the dark side. I became, without changing my views, an enemy to some people. And it saddens me to hear that dedicated managers being criticised by intolerant doctors or by the media. The current system is not the design of people working in hospitals as managers. It's a product of political interference, excessively complicated reform and a long period of austerity. Polly Toynbee put it quite well. The one outcome that's never measured in the NHS is the outcome of what politicians do. We don't have enough capacity in the system anymore. It's incredibly constrained. We had a period of time when investment was good, the focus, on safety, focus was on safety and quality of care, and since then we've slipped down the league table of health systems in the world. Not enough investment. I'm proud that Great Ormond Street has maintained high quality throughout, but our staff are exhausted, uh, and it becomes more and more difficult to cope. Cost savings are always possible, but the processes need to be right to do that. We need spare capacity and rested staff. We desperately need more ICU beds and more operating room space and more efficient processes. Yet we're increasingly reliant everywhere on charitable funding, which I think, when we're talking about our children, should not be the case in a wealthy, modern and ambitious society which cares about its future. This has been an amazing job and I've got few regrets about it. But things have changed. The glamour, the excitement and the perpetual innovation have calmed. I asked one of my younger trainees what advice he would give a new entrant to the specialty in choosing paediatric cardiac surgery. Uh, his reply was interesting, and, and um, if you'll forgive me doing something that you're told not to do, I'm going to read these slides out. It's the one thing in work, if it is the one thing in work that makes you happy, the one thing that makes you get out of bed on a cold Monday morning, then do it. But if there's something else that makes you equally happy, or even just a bit less happy, do that instead. <laughs> the relationships have changed. You are now much less respected as a surgeon. You're more managed, more controlled by others. The pressure for perfection is massive, and every minor error is scrutinised, often by people who haven't a clue how hard it is to do what you do. Anyone doing this surgery understands how tight the margins are. Placing a stitch just less than a millimetre away from the ideal place may have devastating consequences. This is surgery which demands a very high level of technical skill and the ability to perform that skill under scrutiny and against the clock. It's tough, yet you're paid the same as a dermatologist who never gets out of bed and has much less stress. <laughs> On top of that, there are so many system problems. 
particularly with the lack of capacity to meet demand, and this is the bit that I think rings true, that you have to spend half your time managing disappointment. This must be a growing perception. There are hardly any UK trainees entering the discipline. There's an overall shortage of applicants. And uh, I think these people are searching for more normal lives and some equally exciting medicine. This audience has heard my views on this before, but I'm happy to state them again. If you want to achieve an appropriate work-life balance for people who do pediatric cardiac surgery, uh, then they must work in fewer, larger centres with enough staff where research is fostered and where time is made available and support is continuous. Training must be more sophisticated and more, uh, include more simulation. And we have to concentrate on our staff if it's going to remain nice work. For me, it has been the perfect job and a great privilege in every way. And working in a children's hospital is way more fun than working in an adult hospital. There's a natural human need to make life good for your children, visible every day in the dedication, cheerfulness and goodwill of all the staff I've ever worked with. What's not to like about sitting and playing with a child in the middle of the day, seeing them smile and helping them understand what's happening? They are a raison d'etre. A child's smile, a tear or searching question will always ground you and daily remind you of why you come to work. It's an important sign of a civilised society to care well for its children. They are our future. As Michelle Obama put it very kind, uh, clearly last week, we need everyone to care deeply about our kids. This is a philosophy which seems to me embedded in Great Ormond Street, and I strive to make the children as happy as possible. I very rarely see an unhappy child as I walk around that institution, and I'm really proud of that. These are the very staff at Great Ormond Street who do it around you, who make this job nice work, and I can't thank them enough. These Gresham lectures have given me an opportunity to reflect, which few have the privilege to do. And I hope that they've drawn your attention to some of the issues in the field, uh, which I think are important. In this lecture hall, I've met families whose children I've treated. And some of the babies I've operated on, now adults, have come up to me at the end and said thank you. It's been incredibly moving and an immense pleasure. And I can only thank everybody who supported me, my family, of course, but all the staff at Great Ormond Street Institute and Newcastle, too many to name. They know who they are. But I would not be here now if it weren't for the children needed someone to repair their hearts. And I was lucky enough to find that I could do it. That the children and the families have trusted me to do so has been a real honour. It really has been nice work. And I got it. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.